Almighty Father God, You alone can save, deliver, and call us to Yourself. Thank You. Thank You for Your kindness this morning to bring us through another week. And in Your wisdom and by Your mercy, You have brought us here. Thank You for gathering us this morning to hear Your Word and to receive the gifts promised to us through Jesus Christ. May Your Spirit triumph over our hearts of doubt and apathy. O Sovereign Lord, soften our hearts this morning through the preaching of Your Word. Would You remove the hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh that long to walk in Your ways and Your statutes and to keep and obey Your Word. Would You cause the seed of Your Word to be planted in the good soil of our hearts that produces glorious fruits of faith and repentance, hope, holiness, righteousness, and joy. May these things grow and increase and flourish in us this morning as we receive Your Word and as we look to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Deliverer. We ask these things in Your, in your Son's most precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been away from Exodus for the last uh, few weeks, and so I want us to give want to give a short overview to give us an idea of where we are. This is a big book, and it's very easy for us in larger books to get lost where we're at. So if you would, notice chapter 7 with me, and I want to give a little bit of an overview so we can see where we're going and where we've been. I talked before, early on, and as we look at the book of Exodus, that the book of Exodus can be divided into three major sections, three major divisions. The first section consists of God who delivers. That's the heading for the first section, and that's chapters 1 through 18. Chapters 1 through 18, a God who delivers. The second main section of the book of Exodus is a God who demands, and that's chapters 19 through 24. And in that is the Ten Commandments and God's people receiving of the Ten Commandments. A God who demands. Section 1, God who delivers. Section 2, God who demands. And in section 3, this, the third and final section of the book of Exodus, is a God who dwells. A God who dwells with us. This is chapters 25 through 40. Chapters 25 through 40. And so, obviously, we're in the first section, chapters 1 through 18, which is a God who delivers. And in that portion, in that portion of text, chapters 1 through 18, that is divided into two sections. The first portion is chapters 1 through 6. And that's where God is preparing His deliverer, Moses. The deliverer is equipped in chapters 1 through 6. Moses comes on the scene, and God begins to prepare him. And Moses has an excuse for just about everything that the Lord asked him to do. What we find this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 7 is we're making a transition to the second half of this section of text. In chapter 7 through 18, which is the last part of this, chapter 7 through 18, God is actually working to deliver His people. So we've gotten done with Moses being equipped as a deliverer. Now God's going to get to work delivering His people. Notice at the end of chapter 6, verse 30, Right to the last verse, Moses is complaining and the Lord is equipping him. Chapter 6, verse 30 says, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. 
How will Pharaoh listen to me? That's the last excuse that you will hear from Moses. He's going to move forward and act in an amazing way to be faithful to do what God had called him to do. And so in chapters 7 through 18, we're going to see God using this instrument of Moses and Aaron to deliver his people. And what we'll find is that Moses and Aaron have weaknesses and frailties. They have parts that are like ours. And yet they're being used in a mighty way to deliver God's people and to do what God has called them to do. And so this morning, as we look at our text together, I want us to notice chapter 7 specifically. And I want us to notice where God is speaking to Moses. And he's telling Moses the plan of how he's going to deliver his people and what Moses is to, ex- to expect. In fact, what we see here is that the main verb in verses 1 through 7 is the verb there in verse 1 that says, And the Lord said to Moses, See. The idea here is that the Lord is wanting Moses to see or understand or perceive or to, or to grasp the reality of some truths before he launches out and actually faces Pharaoh again. In verses 8 through 13, he's going to be facing Pharaoh again. Moses will be. But the Lord is going to give Moses and also Moses to Aaron these words that will that will allow him to know exactly what God has in store for him as he goes to Pharaoh. And so this morning, I want us to look specifically at verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. And I want us to see three things that the Lord wanted Moses to see or understand or grasp. Three things. And these are the points for the text this morning, verses 1 through 7. The first point is the Lord. He wanted the, he, the Lord wanted Moses to see that the Lord made Moses like God. You see that there in verse seven, or excuse me, verse one of chapter seven. I have made you like God. Verses one and two is that the Lord wanted Moses to see that He's made him like God. The second point is that the Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. See this in verse three. The Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart, verse 3. And then in verses 4 through 7, we see that the Lord will lay His hand on Egypt. The Lord will lay His hand on Egypt. Alright? So the Lord made Moses like God. The Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. And the Lord will lay His hand on Egypt. Those are the three things that... The Lord wanted Moses to understand and to see or to realize or to recognize as he was heading back into the Pharaoh's court. And I want us to notice these as well as we look at our passage this morning, verses 1 through 7. Point number one, the Lord made Moses like God. Now can you imagine the first time that Moses heard this word from the Lord? The Lord's telling Moses, I'm going to make you, Moses, like God to Pharaoh, like me. I'm sure it was shocking and astonishing. What exactly is the Lord, what does He mean when He says that He's going to make Moses like God to Pharaoh, as it says in verse 1? And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What simply means this, that everything that the Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know about who the Lord is will be coming from Moses' mouth. And Moses will be getting that information from God Himself. And Moses will be speaking this this truth of who God is, this this Lord that Pharaoh doesn't know who this one is. He's going to be speaking this truth 
to Moses, and Moses is going to be telling it to Aaron, and Aaron whacked as a prophet speaking to Pharaoh the very words of God that Aaron received from Moses, Moses receiving from God. In other words, Moses is going to be the conduit of everything that the Egyptians and Pharaoh will know about who God is. That's exactly what verse 2 does. It, is, it explains to us what does it mean when the Lord says, I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Verse 2 explains that very thing. It says in verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So very simply, Moses is going to be a conduit for the very revelation of God to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. What's interesting is that Moses is a conduit of the revelation of God to us as we look at the book of Exodus. We're getting these words that God had told Moses and Moses had written down that we are now, thousands of years later, reading and hearing about the truth of who God is. Moses is like God to us in that he is revealing to us the very Word of God and showing us who God is. Isn't it interesting as well that the, the extent of what he's supposed to be saying, notice that what it says in, um, in verse 2, you shall speak, notice this, all that I command you. In other words, Moses is to tell them everything that God reveals to Moses, Moses is to tell to, to the Egyptians, to Aaron and to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh, He's not going to leave out any of that, even if he may want to filter it or think that it may not be important. He's to tell them everything that they are to know because it is God who wants them to know all that he has commanded. It's exactly like the phrase, if you've heard that, maybe it's already marked in your mind, the phrase that our Lord gives to us at the end of Matthew 28. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. And so it's interesting that that phrase that the Lord had given to Moses is now the phrase that Jesus, our Lord, has given to us to make sure that as we make disciples and as we go, we tell them all that the Lord has commanded us, all that the Lord has taught us. And behold, Jesus says in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the Lord made Moses like God. He wanted, the Lord wanted Moses to understand that he was the mouthpiece for God and that it was necessary for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to know who this God was. We're going to find that the plagues are going to be a very clear, in-your-face statement to the Egyptians of who God is, who this Lord is. And as we begin moving through the plagues, we'll see that very clearly. The second point I want us to notice this morning, not only did the Lord want Moses to know that he was going to be like God, but secondly, that the Lord would harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. He says, see, recognize, discern, perceive, understand that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Notice that what the Lord does not say is he doesn't say the Pharaoh may not like this too much. The Lord doesn't say this will take a lot of persuasion from the Pharaoh because he's got a lot, of, lot to lose in this deal. The Lord does not say, now Pharaoh is very powerful and he has a lot of resources. Don't think this will be easy. Now that's not the information that the Lord wanted Moses to understand. Look at our text. In verse 3, what the Lord clearly wanted Moses to understand is that when he went as a mouthpiece of God to speak to, to Pharaoh, 
that the Lord himself will be the one who is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. It says in verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This command, even though it may be all the commands, as it says in verse 2, it says, you shall speak all that I command you. Aaron's going to be the mouthpiece of the Lord to Pharaoh. He's going to be the prophet. Even though Moses and Aaron were called to these specific tasks, that did not automatically mean that the Pharaoh would bow and worship and submit to this calling. Why? According to our text, it's because the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, we know we're going to have to spend some time here. Even though this is a small verse, verse 3, let us take a look at a few things here as we consider this passage. First is this. The fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart is not just in this portion of text, but is all over the book of Exodus. In fact, what we find, and I'll give you a list here, of all the occurrences where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We will go as far as to say that God not only hardened Pharaoh's heart, but God caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. This is not God doing something passively, but God doing something actively. It says in Exodus 9, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Exodus 10, verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 10, verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 11, verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 14, 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 14, 8, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's Uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. A couple of questions we have to ask when we think about the fact that the scriptures are so clear about the fact that God himself hardened this man's heart, Pharaoh's heart. The first question is this, did God sin or is God responsible for sin in any way? In other words, does this causing Pharaoh's heart to be hardened make God responsible for the sin of Pharaoh? And the answer is no. Though we see everywhere in the Bible that there is not one action, one motive, one emotion, one atom that's outside of the sovereign reign of God, we must insist as well that Scripture equally teaches that that God never is directly doing evil of any kind, nor do we see in Scripture God blamed for sin or evil in any way, or that he takes pleasure in evil in any way. We don't see that anywhere in our Bibles. This is, in fact, if we begin doing this kind of thing, we are accusing God of something contrary to his very character. God in his very character is holy and righteous, and to do something or to be blamed for something evil or sinful would be contrary to the very being of who he is. And so nowhere in Scripture do we see God being blamed or accused for doing evil. And yet, we see him working in these instruments like Pharaoh, who themselves did evil. This is exactly the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, the paragraph in Romans chapter 9 that speaks of Pharaoh begins this way. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The question is this. How can God, who is orchestrating and ordering and making all these things happen, how can, we, how can we not blame him for, for evil? In other words, 
isn't, isn't God unjust by doing this? Isn't he unrighteous by doing this? That's the question that Paul asked in Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God and on God's part? And the answer is by no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then it goes on and says, for the scripture says, this is Romans 9, to Pharaoh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he pardons whomever he wills. The answer to the question is, does God sin by doing this? Can he be blamed for evil? The answer is by no means. The answer that Paul gives us in Romans 9 is that God does what he wants to do. And he's always righteous and just in doing it. And so the first question of did God do evil by pardoning Pharaoh's heart, the answer is no. We can never go there or assume that. It leads to a second question. If Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, then doesn't that somehow make it so that Pharaoh's not responsible for the sin that he does? Because Pharaoh clearly sins. He rebels against God. He pushes away from what God says and does. So is this in some way, because of the Lord's doing, hardening his heart, is this some way make him not responsible for the sin since it was God's doing? We find everywhere as we continue to read through the plagues, he has been read through the narrative of chapter, uh, chapter 7 through 15 of the plagues, Pharaoh was punished by God for his disobedience and hard hardness. Pharaoh was punished for that. God was punishing him for the sin that he was committing. We must also be clear to affirm this. We need to understand this very clearly. This is, this is absolutely vital for us to grasp, but so many of us don't. So many today automatically assume that we are blank slates, that we're kind of, we're kind of in the middle. We can go either evil or bad. We can kind of go one way or the direction, either direction. What Scripture tells us is that our hearts are desperately wicked. We're not in the middle and can fall either way. Our hearts desperately desire to rebel against our God. And so by this hardening that God did of Pharaoh's heart, we cannot say that this hardening means that God put something in Pharaoh's heart that wasn't already there. It says in Scripture that, that Pharaoh's heart is just like all of ours prior to the Lord converting us. Apart from the Holy Spirit, all of our hearts are this way. All of our hearts are dead and trespassing to sins. All of us diligently pursue our own desires and lusts and passions. And were it not for the very Spirit of God regenerating our heart, we would all desire to run headlong away from God. We would not be pleasing to God in any way. Romans chapter 1 says it this way. Romans chapter 1 says that God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. What was in their hearts? Lust was. Impurity was. Romans chapter 1 verse 26 says God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Where were those dishonorable passions? They were in their heart. Romans chapter 1 verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Why? Because their mind was corrupt and opposed to God. In other words, God was simply holding Pharaoh to what his heart already desired to do. When he hardened the heart, 
He hardened the heart of Pharaoh in such a way as to make him continue in the path that Pharaoh already had a heart bent to do. That is why there's three times in the book of Exodus that we have Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, Exodus chapter 8, verse 32, Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. We have those three occurrences where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, the reason is because his heart was hard. And who did it? God did. Why do we know that? Because in chapter 7, verse 3, God had not gone to Pharaoh yet. In other words, this is a prediction of what God was going to do when all the plagues commenced. When all the plagues took place, God told uh, Moses in chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord, he says, I'm going to harden his heart. He's not looking at it in retrospect. He's saying, when you go out and do all these signs and wonders, because it says in verse 3, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, he will not listen. Why? Because the Lord says, I've already, I've, I've hardened his heart. And so we see here, that the Lord has not put anything in Pharaoh's heart that he already didn't have. So, who is responsible for the hardening of his heart? We must acknowledge the book of Exodus and all of Scripture speaks of God's sovereign control over hearts. And though the Lord may do amazing and incredible things in and through your life, and though there may be amazing provision and miracles all around you, you will never listen to the voice of God unless the Lord, by His Spirit, softens your heart. Right. It is something we must take very seriously, brothers and sisters. There are those of you who are sitting here this morning that have seen amazing things that God has done to those who are around you, to your family members, to your loved ones, to other church members. God has been faithful and true. He's done accomplished much. Many of you are praying for loved ones and others. And many of you would say... Things like, well, if they just once they if they hit bottom, then there's nowhere else to go, right? There isn't a bottom that they can get to that will make them to listen to God unless the Lord by His Spirit prompts their heart to turn to God, brothers and sisters. So so don't pray that they hit the bottom. Pray that they come to Jesus. We have all known brothers and sisters and loved ones and, and people that are around us, and we're wondering where's the bottom that they can they, they They've gotten so low. They've lost so much. When are they going to come to the Lord? That's only a testimony that all hearts are like Pharaoh's hearts and they will not come to Jesus apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. That is where we as God's people need to believe our doctrine clearly. Not just just share Jesus and love them and care for them and try to help them. Those are things we should do, yes. But we must desperately plead that Jesus by the Spirit will, will quicken their heart and turn them to repentance and faith. That is our prayer this morning as we sit here. It's amazing. The Lord has called me this morning to preach this text to you. There's nothing wowing and impressive and amazing about this text. You can, you can, many of you have sat through sermons over and over and over again, and it's just bouncing off of you. My prayer this morning is that you will listen. That, you, that the Lord will quicken your heart and say, Oh my, would that you, Lord Jesus, come and, and, and soften my heart because it's become so callous and hard from hearing the Word of God preached all my life as I've shown up at church. And yet my heart is indifferent and apathetic. 
You're far more concerned about what you're going to do after this than you are right now about God's Word. The one who is in heaven that the seraphim are singing praises to right now in all of His glory and wonder is speaking to you through His Word and you're looking at your watch wondering what you're going to do for lunch. It's only by the quickening of the Spirit. It's only by the Lord softening our hearts that we may hear Him. As it says in verse 4 at the very beginning, Pharaoh will not listen to you. The Lord wanted Moses to be very clear that this was going to happen. Now, that's the second point of our passage this morning. The third and final point I want us to notice is that the Lord wanted Moses to grasp, to comprehend, to perceive, to see this third truth before he went into the courts of Pharaoh. And it is this, that the Lord will lay his hand on Egypt. This is the point of the third of this, of this of verses four, the, the middle verse four through the rest of our passage. And this is the point that apart from the strong and sovereign hand of God accomplishing deliverance, God's people would never be delivered. God works most often. God works most uniquely when there's no other answer out there other than that God shows up and does something. God is so jealous for His glory. Jealous in a good way. He so wants to work in our lives that we give up and we say, Lord, unless you move, we can't do anything. And He shows up and shows Himself glorious and triumphant over and over again. Here, what the Lord wanted Moses to see and understand and perceive is that apart from His strong hand moving, this thing that He was calling Moses to do, and that is deliver God's people, will never happen. And He gives us reasons here. He shows us very clearly of these things that he wants them to understand. So look with me, if you will, at verse 4. It says in verse 4, in the second sentence there, then, after the Lord hardens his heart, Pharaoh's heart, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And I want you to notice first who he's seeking to deliver. The Lord is wanting to seek to deliver his people. Notice what it says. I will lay my hand on Egypt to bring, notice, my host and my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The Lord isn't simply calling these people out of their suffering and their, and their bondage and says, okay, when I, when I get you out of Egypt, then you can go on your merry way and do whatever you want to. No, what we find here is that the Lord is calling His people to Himself. When the Lord saved you, brothers and sisters, He wasn't saving you from your sin and your bondage and your bad habits and your awful life to go on your merry way and do your thing. When the Lord saves us, He saves us to Himself. He wants us to come to Himself. He wants to call us my children, as it says here, my people, my host, the children of Israel. He's calling us with compassion to Himself. That's what God saves us to. It isn't He just saves us out of all of the yuck that we make of our own lives, but instead He saves us to come into His very presence and to know Him and to call Him Father. What a blessing we so often overlook. So He says that His strong hand is going to do this. He's going to bring His people out who are His host. This is my host and my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Not only who is He bringing out, but I want you to notice how He plans on doing it. Second is... How does he plan on doing this thing? At the end of verse 4, it says, 
out of the land of Egypt, notice this phrase, by great acts of judgment. By great acts of judgment. We need to be sober-minded to think that when God finally ends all things and He breaks through the clouds in the person of Jesus Christ, that will be a glorious and beautiful and long-awaited day for so many of us. It will be the first second of an eternity of horror for so many others. All deliverance in Scripture is by means of great judgment. There is no deliverance apart from great acts of judgment. All salvation, as beautiful and glorious as it is, is salvation from a horror of being under the wrath of God for eternity. This deliverance is not a universal utopia for everyone. The deliverance that God has called His people to throughout Scriptures and to us today is a deliverance. What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. That's what Christ saves us from. And so this deliverance we must acknowledge and we must affirm. Why is our salvation to so many not precious, not astounding, not breathtaking? Because we think the Lord has saved us from our bad habits. We think the Lord has saved us from um, a difficult relationship. We think the Lord has has saved us from um, um, bad stewardships. The Lord has saved us from the wrath of God. Until we realize the extent and the magnitude of the great acts of judgment that He saves us from, we will never, we will never with an astounded heart worship our God as we should. God delivers us with profound and breathtaking salvation. A book that I recently read about this was very helpful. Every chapter in the book was a was a was Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It goes through every chapter, every book of the Bible, and it shows how God, through judgment, is delivering His people for His own glory. This book, the title of it is called "God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment." God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment by James Hamilton, and in that book, it shows that every time the Lord delivers His people. There's great judgment for those who are not doing it. We know that in the Old Testament, God showed His judgment. This verse right here that we're looking at says, out of the land of Egypt, in the verse 4, by great acts of judgment. If we turn several chapters over, you may want to do this. Chapter 14. Chapter 14 of Exodus. The Lord's going to deliver His people from the Egyptians who are their enemies, who are oppressing them. Chapter 14 is the Red Sea occurrence. At the end of chapter 14, verse 30, notice this great act of judgment. And you tell me if you think this was not engraven on their minds as they left that Red Sea scenario. Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. Isn't that glorious? 
The Lord saved Israel that day. That's a beautiful thing. That's what we want to hear. That's what we love to talk about. Notice the rest of this verse. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Do you think they had an understanding of salvation that was blissful and wonderful and utopia? No, their understanding of salvation were dead bodies floating on the shore of the sea of the Red Sea. They understood that God saved them from something amazing and incredible. You see, brothers and sisters, the way we are delivered, we must understand. How are we delivered? By what means are we going to be delivered? We're going to be delivered from the horrific wrath of God, His judgment. And we're only going to have that done by this judgment being placed somewhere. We all deserve it. And it's only in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's only there where Christ received the judgment and the wrath and the horror that all of us deserved. And somebody had to take these great acts of judgment on our behalf. And Christ went to the cross, hung there, received upon Himself the wrath that we deserved. And brothers and sisters, out of great acts of judgment, poured upon Jesus Christ is the reason any of us are saved. We have a wonderful and glorious Savior. Why? Because God poured His wrath out on Christ. And in Christ, we are now forgiven and able to live in salvation. It is the very thing that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 1 where it says, God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's the point of this third passage, the third point of our passage here? And that is only the Lord can do it. If we've got to pass through these things of judgment, these great acts of judgment, how are we to be saved? Only through a Savior. Only through that which is low and despised, that which is not considered wise by the world. By passing through great judgment, our Lord took upon Himself and absorbed the very wrath and judgment of God so that we can be delivered. So we can have a glorious, amazing, precious, breathtaking deliverance. What a Savior. Who was the Lord delivering? We talked about that. How did the Lord deliver? Look at verse 5. We're going to see why the Lord delivered His people. Why is the Lord desiring to deliver His people this way? Verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. It doesn't say that the Egyptians will know that the Lord is one among the plethora of deities that they have. That's not what it says. It says here in verse 5 that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. The one paramount over all their deities, all their gods, all of their false idolatries. The Lord's going to show Himself strong and powerful and, and, and sovereign over all of them. And He's going to do it as He works through the plagues. Each one of the plagues is a reflection and an example of a deity that the Egyptians had in their culture. And God's going to show through Moses, through each one of the plagues, that He's more powerful than any of their deities and any of their gods. And that He is, in fact, here He is, the Lord. The one who's the creator and sustainer of all that is. 
He's the Lord over, over all creation. He's the covenant-keeping God for the people of Hebrew. And it says here that the Lord will do this. He's going to show Himself not only to His people, the Hebrews and the Jews, but He's going to show Himself to the Egyptians that He is powerful and strong. Not in a saving way, because we see that when is He going to do this? When is He going to, when is he going to do this? Show Himself. It says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When is He going to do this? Verse 5. When I stretch out my hand, how does it say? against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Lord's not doing this in a saving way. He's doing this in a judgment way. The truth is this. The Lord's going to show His mighty, mighty right hand upon all creation one day. And that one day will be that day when God, who has highly exalted Himself and bestows on Christ the name that is above every name, Philippians chapter 2, so that at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? Every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue that will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord. He is the Lord. That's what he's speaking of here. To the glory of God the Father. Finally, notice if you will. In, uh, in, verse, in verse 6 it says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Isn't that so different from the last four chapters where every time God told Moses to do something, he made an excuse for it? It's amazing. Moses now finally gets it. When God says something, as, as amazing and unthinkable as it may be, when God says, be faithful, that's what we're supposed to do. He's telling us to walk as he tells us to. And the more... Moses does this the more God shows his deliverance. Brothers and sisters, it's going to become more and more, and it has become more and more difficult for us to live in this world being faithful to what God's called us to do. And yet, you know what the Lord tells us to do? He tells us to do what Moses did, and that is do it, do it just as the Lord commanded it, and do it as God's called you to. Live that way. Now, isn't that a declaration that it wasn't Moses doing it, but God? This is a declaration. Moses is saying, I'm just doing what God told me to do. And the Lord is bringing about deliverance. And the final underscoring of the fact that this was not in Moses' strength or Aaron's strength or their ability is in verse 7. And some of you know this verse better than others. Moses and Aaron were old. They haven't even started delivering God's people yet. They're, they're getting ready to go into Pharaoh's court. And it says here in verse 7, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Air conditioner's on. That's a good thing. They were 80 and 83 years old. Now why is that verse there? It's just to underscore again that the Lord is working and it had nothing to do with Aaron and Moses and their abilities. We have a thing in America called retirement. For whatever it is, that, that, that's a blessing in so many ways. But the Lord has never shown us in Scripture that we're to retire from His work. The Lord's work is not something to retire from. In fact, brothers and sisters, many of you may be retired from your vocation, the thing you make money at, but could it be that the Lord plans on doing far more in your life now in these years that seem to be the years that Americans like to waste on the golf course than, than He's done in your life prior to the Lord doesn't want us to retire from His work. He wants us to, to continue to be faithful, to do exactly what He's called us to do and see the amazing thing that God has called 
for us to live in and to work in and to see God's power work. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, it's the power of God that's working. That, that, that the Lord wanted Moses to see. He wanted Moses to see that it was Him. It was the Lord that was going to do this. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's a lot being said today about how wise and intelligent and important and resources that we have as people and specifically as Americans. Don't believe that that has any significance to the power of God to save people through the preaching and speaking of His Word. Let's ask that God will renew our hearts to understand that through His Word, He can continue to transform us to be men and women that God has called us to be. And that we might look to Jesus and see that He is indeed a sufficient Savior. Let us pray.